Welcome to Trial Lawyer View, a podcast for and about trial lawyers. We will tell the stories about trial lawyers who go to battle every day in courtrooms throughout the United States for injury victims. This is about their stories and their practices. Hello, everyone. I'm Jason Lazarus, your host for Trial Lawyer View. Thank you for tuning in today for another episode. Trial Lawyer View is brought to you by Synergy Settlement services in full disclosure. I'm not a professional podcaster. My day job is CEO of Synergy Settlement Services. And Synergy allows trial lawyers to focus on what they do best by handling the difficult issues at settlement like healthcare lien resolution, Medicare compliance, government benefit preservation, and complex settlement planning issues. Joining me on Trial Lawyer View is Michael Haggard, a longtime friend and someone I've worked with for over 20 years. He is a stellar trial lawyer who specializes in catastrophic damages cases. He's got incredible expertise in the niche of drowning cases and negligent security claims. He's the managing partner and practices with the Haggard Law Firm in Coral Gables. And he's got a very impressive resume. I'm going I'm to read a little bit of it to you because I think it's important to, to know who we're talking to. He has dedicated his career to the pursuit of justice on behalf of clients in the courtroom, securing unprecedented awards, and as an activist who continuously lobbies for permanent solutions and change through local, statewide, and federal legislation, specializing in pool drowning, negligent security, wrongful death, unsafe premises, and products liability. He's established himself as a powerful force in the legal community as a managing partner of the Haggard Law Firm. After spending time as a public defender and working with a small personal injury firm before joining the Haggard Law Firm, he was named a partner in 2001, securing the belief that every case holds equal importance and could mean the opportunity to award a family resolution to a devastating incident. He captured national headlines as the only plaintiff's personal injury attorney to secure three separate $100 million verdicts on behalf of individual clients. He's secured two consecutive $100 million verdicts on behalf of children involved in pool accidents. Several years later, a third $100 million verdict was awarded by a jury in a negligent security case deemed the largest of its kind in that genre of case law. Ultimately, and this is what really reaches out to me and, and my, uh, touches my heart, he hopes to give victims the tools and resources to help rebuild their lives, uh, which is one of my missions. Uh, by convincing a judge or jury to hold those responsible accountable, he gives victims and their families a sense of justice and comfort that another family won't have to go through this same tragedy. Devoted to his clients, he's received numerous awards for his time and dedication, earning him recognition as one of the most highly regarded personal injury attorneys in the country. It would take me too long to go through all these awards, so I will not do that. Um, he is fiercely dedicated to a myriad of worthy causes, which I believe this is worth spending time talking about. Uh, he ha has an obligation, he feels, to give back to his community. He serves on the Advisory Council for the National Drowning Prevention Alliance and sits on the Board of Directors for the National Crime Victim Bar Association, where his knowledge and background of representing victims of violent crimes, including sex crimes, is put to good use. Additionally, he's a member of the MAD Barristers Council and supports the National Center for Victims of Crime. Closest to his heart, uh, he sits on the National Board of Polycystic Kidney Foundation, 
passed genetically, this disease has affected many members of his family as well as himself. Uh, outside the office, uh, he's also a dedicated father. He enjoys spending time with his wife, his daughter, and his son. Welcome to the program, Michael Haggard. Thanks, Jason. Good to see you. So let's talk uh, some personal stuff first. How's your family? Your daughter is in college in New Orleans. I think you told me you just got back from there and your son Carson is weighing options on being recruited to play a QB in college. So tell me about all that. Well, yeah, we just got back, went up for Easter to New Orleans and visit my daughter Tulane and uh, just a beautiful campus. I mean, you know, going through everything that we've gone through in the pandemic, it was just really nice. Some of the interesting things is you do things with a smaller group of people, but maybe get to spend more quality time. And uh, so went up there with my son and he, he uh, actually played in a football tournament with a, a group out of New Orleans that he's been rivals with the last three or four years. And they found out he was going up there. So we played with them, ate crawfish, just had a great time. And uh, so, yeah, man, I mean, they're getting older as long as I've known you. I mean, they were running around to the Synergy booth and taking all your gifts, your guys' little balls and different knickknacks you had to now, you know, both will be in college in a year. So it's kind of crazy. I know it's crazy. You and I are, are roughly the same age, and I. It's just incredible when you you start looking at how much uh, has changed in what seems like a blink of an eye, but it really yeah. is. Uh, it's crazy how quickly it passes. That's yeah, it's, uh, that's so, insane. Another personal question, but an important one. Um, you were diagnosed in your thirties with polycystic kidney disease. What is it and what did you endure as a result? Because I know the story and it's pretty incredible. Yeah, well, you know, um, my uncle was on dialysis and he was actually a nephrologist. He went to medical school and became a, a kidney doctor, a nephrologist, because his mother had PKD and, and she passed away. I never met my maternal grandmother. And uh, so I'd known about kidney disease in our family, but you know, you're working hard, you're enjoying life. And I had some back pain. I went to the doctor and the doctor came out reading my MRI. He goes, yeah, you have a herniated disc. I mean, you know, I said, but do you have any kidney disease in your family? And, you know, my heart sank. I was like, uh-oh, yeah, here, here, here comes what I'd heard about growing up. And uh, so I was very fortunate. I was diagnosed with PKD, I, uh, which what it means is your, your kidneys have cysts growing on them to the point where they impact your kidney function over time. And... So in my 30s, you know, my 40s, like, you know, my, I would see my doctor, my function would decline, but I didn't really feel anything. But then it came a point, you know, you're 22% and you got to start figuring out, you know, are you going to just go on the list and be of 100,000 people or can you find a match? And um, so, you know, went through the process of, wow, I'm a trial lawyer. I get referrals. Do I want to live this publicly or not? And you know, my wife and I made the decision, look, it, you know, you can be a trial lawyer, even if you're on dialysis, but certainly if you're transplants, you need to be open about it. And and what can we, if we're open about it, we can help people, we can help cure the disease. Uh, and that was our first sense is really getting involved with PKD Foundation and funding research because the, the blessing of this disease is that they've mapped out the gene. So we have, we have a treatment for it now, which we didn't have when I was transplanted. And we're, we're developing more treatments and it's incredible research. We really are on the cutting edge of, of possibly getting, you know, some treatment that will slow down the progression of the disease. Um, and then I started looking for donors and just, you know, 
being in the trial lawyer community and it was amazing. I had 14 people come forward to be tested to donate a kidney to me. And uh, I can tell you, 10 of them were trial lawyers. I mean, you know, and you, you think about how close we all are through the FJ and, and through different things. And I mean, to give the ultimate gift of life to someone, and it's one thing, send somebody a, a wine basket during the holidays. It's a whole nother to offer to save their life. And, um, and so uh, my brother-in-law, my wife's brother, who's a Army Blackhawk pilot, was a match. Was the, I had a couple of matches. He was the best because he was younger. He was a male. And uh, so, you know, incredibly, he uh, saved my life. And I was transplanted four and a half years ago at Tampa General Hospital and been back to normal ever since. I mean, it just, uh, it's been an incredible ride. And, and ironically, one I wouldn't trade because now my wife and I have funded a position at Tampa General Hospital that is in my brother-in-law's name, which sole function is to find living donors for people because people just think that I'll go on dialysis. I'll go on the list. And they don't think, wait a minute, I can go to a friend. I can go to a, someone at my church, someone at my work, and they could donate me a kidney and my life is normal. And it's something that broke my heart seeing so many people that were just willing to go on dialysis three times a week rather than ask, but they didn't know how to ask. So that the function Becky and I have uh, uh, funded the position does just that, teaches people how to ask for someone to save their life. It was incredible, you know, doing the the research for doing this podcast with you when I was reading that really it's only pretty much just about being the correct blood match, blood type match versus, you know, something more in terms of compatibility. Is that is that correct? Yeah, you know, you always hear, oh, somebody was a perfect match. And I always say, don't use that word because that kind of, you know, that, that makes people think it's you know, a higher standard than it is. You, you can be... Yeah, there's several blood types that can give to each other. Uh, and so there's a, you know easy chart to follow. Uh, and then you have to have some, you can't have antigens against each other, which we're all learning about more, you know, with COVID. Uh, but as long as you don't have antigens against each other, and then you have to qualify. You know, someone can't be a donor if they have a pre-existing disease that, that would make it, you know, not be favorable to, to have surgery. You know, high blood pressure might be something that would disqualify a donor. But if someone's relatively healthy and you have a blood match, um, you know, it's very likely that person could be your donor. And that's why you know, I was very fortunate. I had a 14 people tested. I had about four to five that would have been matches. Um, two that were better matches because of other things. So, yeah, so we really encourage people, talk to someone. You know, you can find out their blood type and then you don't have to talk to them any further and find out whether they have something that will prohibit them. Um, but we, it's been amazing to see the amount of people that have been transplanted, you know, and then you, and then you just, and the limitations once you're transplanted, it's not much. I mean, I'm doing everything I did before, except for I can't eat raw, raw oysters, which you know, is, is, is tough. Yeah. I, it's just an incredible thing though, that your, your brother-in-law gave you. I mean, that, that kind of gift is, is something that you can never repay. And um, I was reading his background about, you know, basically, you know, in service to our country and, and then going back to, to duty after after giving you what what is something that gives you a, a, you know, a huge difference maker in your quality of life. It's just a pretty, pretty cool and incredible story all the way around. Yeah. He, you know, I always tell people and they wonder, 
well, will my life be normal once I, if I donate a kidney? And obviously everybody can live fine on one kidney and do. Um, and also there's studies that show that folks that are kidney donors actually have a longer life expectancy than the normal population. And the reason why is they go through such a battery of tests to make sure they're healthy enough to give a kidney that, you know, any other issues found out about. But my brother-in-law within six months of a donated kidney to me was sent to the Middle East for his third tour in the Middle East. He was flying helicopters in combat six months later. So I always tell everybody, I mean, you, you'll be right back to normal. Yeah, that's just incredible. So I'm, I'm curious, um, you know, how did that entire experience impact you as a person and impact your law practice? Cause I, I got to believe that it changed your viewpoint to some extent. I know, you know, being hit while cycling and, you know, going through what I went through after that certainly changed a lot of things for me in terms of how I view things. So I'm curious, and I'd read something a little bit about this. So I'm, I'm thinking it'd be interesting for you to share kind of what that, how, how that changed things for you. You know, I, I always tried to, you know, my obviously practicing with my dad and my dad's been my mentor and he, he always has talked about the tort system that you're trying to not just save your client, but then try to change the world. And and we we had done that. I think that when I went through this, you know, I just basically said, you know, God's given me a second chance. And everything that I do in every case, every cause has got to be 100 miles an hour to to try to make the world a better place, to try to impact wherever you, know, you can, because you got a second chance and you can't squander it. And, uh, and so it's really, kind of, I think it's sharpened my focus. It also, you know, when you, when you have the stress of being a trial lawyer, you know, it's easy to say if, if you like, man, you know, you're getting ready for a big trial. You're not as nervous when, you know, when you go to bed at night, when you're not being operated on the next day, you know, when you're not, you know, you kind of put, it puts everything into perspective that, you know, I'm here, I'm fortunate and let's go do this, whatever this cause is, whatever the mission is. You know, you, you just have a renewed approach to it, which is, you know, very healthy. I think very spiritual, something that, again, kind of like I said, I, I don't know if I'd change, to be honest with you. I, I, I just think God put me in that place and, and my wife and really all of us so that we can help people, you know, not only with PKD, which is so important, but also with transplant. Because, you know, if I was getting dialysis three times a week, that, you know, that that's something that weighs on everyone. And it's a it's a tough life. And to not be able to do that and do whatever you want to do, you better focus that on doing it and making, you know, life better for others. That's really what we try to do. That's interesting. You know, I mean, I, I always realized the importance of what I did, the role I played in, you know, helping injury victims after they've been through something pretty horrific and, and catastrophic by the time I met with them. And the awesome responsibility I had in doing what I would do for them. But, you know, when you, when you go through something that, you know, kind of makes you double down on that mission, it's, it is, you know, those life altering things. And, and for me, it was, you know, it was, it was that focus on, Hey, we have this opportunity, obligation, privilege of helping people in a time that um, is, is such a difficult time for, for most. And, you know, because you've seen some of these these tragedies so up close and personal and firsthand that, you know, it is a, a really tough thing um, for people to to deal with. 
Uh, no question. I mean, I, I was just on a, you know, on a Zoom with with some uh, clients who've lost their child, and and you just, you know, there's there's just nothing as much as I've seen, as much as you've seen, you know, you don't ever want to be in that club. And I tell every family, I, I'm, I don't know what to tell you. You know, when when I have clients who are injured, I can relate a little bit because I've been through some stuff, and I always tell them my story because I want them to know who I am. Um, as a lawyer, as a, as a trial lawyer, you've got to have that relationship with your client. Um, but I also tell them, you know, I'm on the other side. Whatever your other side is, let's get you there. You know, and I, and and it's interesting because I think I think clients they like, they, they really want to see that their attorney, or in your case, someone who's going to handle their future for the rest of time, that they've been through some stuff. You know, that they've been through adversity and they came out to the other side. You know, I think it's important to be to really be real and human with your clients. Yeah, and I think that the importance of, you know, the your yourself and your company, whether it's a law firm or a company like ours, understanding the importance of the mission, understanding the responsibility of who we serve and why we do what we do. Uh, and I know because I've, I, I've been in a room with you with clients that you are one of those people that takes that incredibly seriously and, you know, cares deeply about their clients and, you know, the client understands that and knows that. And, and that's, that's such an important thing in this. And in, in what we do is, is them feeling like they have someone that is on their side that they can depend on that has their best interests at heart. So, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a pleasure working with lawyers who get it like that. And I think most do. And, you know, but it, it's such a such an awesome responsibility and privilege that that we all have that you know we we get this opportunity to help people when when they need it i was just gonna say i was talking to a young young lawyer and 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 they were talking about personal injury pi but they were talking about all the wrong things we're talking about you know talking obviously about money or talking about winning you know and all these different things so let me tell you when you go to bed before that closing argument and whether you win or lose, whether your client lives or not. Because a lot of these cases, I mean, as you know better than anybody, I mean, what they're getting medically is not going to sustain them. And if we don't win the case, uh, they're not going to live long. And they're not going to, you know, and so that that's the reality of what's at stake. And I kind of told this younger lawyer, I said, you better be able to handle that. Don't worry about any of the other stuff. The other stuff comes if you, you know, do your job and you always put the client's interest first. But you better be able to take that pressure, and it's real. And uh, you know, I, I remember when I was a young lawyer and just talking to some of the greats. And obviously, I had the privilege of knowing them through my dad. And they were always, I always felt that they were always appropriately tough with me, like a J.B. Spence or a Chris Searcy who said to me, "You know, you better be doing this for the right reasons, because this is tough. You may not know it's tough because you've seen." You've seen your dad and you've seen the success part. You don't see your dad at midnight when he's in the office because you're not at the office with him. You know, and I always love the fact that mentors like that, the legends of, of our profession, would be tough on a younger trial lawyer saying, you better know what, what you, the mantle you got to pick up. And, uh, and I feel like, you know, we were talking about Sean Dominic earlier and, and others, I feel like our generation has got to bring that along to the other young lawyers. I think guys like Sean, 
guys like, you know, Fred and, and I try to do that because I think it's incredibly important that they know what's at stake because it, it really is, it's, it's an incredible honor profession, but, but, you know, it's not easy. Well, I mean, I know that you've given back an incredible amount. I've seen it with the FJA and with other organizations that you've been a leader amongst. I mean, I assume that, you know, part of that comes from the kind of legacy that your dad um, provided for you. And I, I was curious, you know, with him being such a legendary trial lawyer, uh, was there ever any doubt that you were going to follow in his footsteps? Well, it's... it's uh trying to think of what FJA speech he did. It might have been when I became president, but my dad always jokes that I was at FSU senior year, had no idea what I was going to do. I went to the job fair, and the only two people, companies I talked to was Frito-Lay to be a truck driver, and uh, and then the CIA, because they had a booth there, and they asked me, what languages do you speak? I said, I speak English. And the guy said, well, we have a pretty good relationship with Great Britain, so we don't really need you there. Uh, and so my dad's like, what are our options? What are we doing? He goes, I think you should think about law school. And I, you know, I, growing up being around the dinner table and working at my dad's firm, I'd always seen the client's stories and always knew, you know, just, just how awesome the profession could be. And, and then in college, I majored in communications because I love public speaking. I love learning about, you know, nonverbal communication, all these different things. But you know, you, you want, I want to go explore a little bit because I, I knew that, but it kind of took me back that, you know, if you love communicating, you love speaking, trying to be persuasive, there's no better thing to do in the world than being a trial lawyer. And uh, so when I went to law school, you know, what I really wanted to do is come out and, and either be a state attorney or a public defender, because I knew that was the way I was going to get into the courtroom immediately. And I was a PD for two years and absolutely loved it. I mean, just tried as many cases as I could. I would wait. I'd see the PD who had a family, had to get home. I'd be like, I'll take your trial tonight. Let me have it. And uh, so I would go do that. And, you know, as everybody says, I mean, if you could make a living long term there, which is not easy, um, everybody would do it. Or what I joke is maybe when I'm, you know, 70 something years old, I'm going to go back and just be a PD in county court, try cases every day. Because it's, it's really it's the best breeding ground in the world to become a, a, a traveler. Well, so you go to law school ultimately, and then you, you have your stints as you've talked about other places, but ultimately you join up uh, with your dad um, and you develop a real niche in handling drowning cases and get 200 plus million dollar verdicts. How did that happen? Well, you know, it, Ironically, those two terrible cases, um, the Hinton and Peterson case, happened within a couple months of each other. You know, I, I, um, I got a call that a 14-year-old boy had um, been swimming in a pool, playing a game that probably you played when you were growing up, Jason, where he threw pennies in the pool and they'd roll towards the main drain. The main drain cover was missing and Lorenzo put his hand in there. His hand got caught and six adults jumped in the pool. A police officer jumped in, cut a hose, trying to get oxygen to Lorenzo. Imagine him looking at Lorenzo as he lost consciousness. And then uh, he went up and broke into the pump room door, turned off the pump, and Lorenzo was massively, massively brain damaged. 
And then a couple months later, Lauren Hinton went through a broken pool gate at an apartment complex, fell in the pool. She was two years, uh, 10 months old at the time and, and suffered the same exact anoxic brain injury that Lorenzo did. And so, you know, it was kind of, I was, you know, 31 years old, got both those cases, um, you know, worked them up and, uh, we tried those. We tried Lauren Hinton. My dad and I tried the Hinton case in January of 2003. And then Bob Parks and I tried the Peterson case July of 2003. And in the meantime, I was in Tallahassee for two months fighting medical malpractice tort reform. So it was a crazy year. My, my, my wife always jokes that I, you know, I was gone the entire year. Um, and, and I was, um, but, uh, but they were, you know, they were remarkable cases in the sense that um, they've changed so much um, in terms of safety. I mean, both were $100 million cases, and that's the headliner for everybody. But Lorenzo's case was followed up by um, Virginia Graham Baker, who uh, was Secretary of State James Baker's granddaughter. Several years later, she was entrapped on a drain in Alexandria, Virginia. And the Baker family came to us through uh, some lawyers up in Virginia because they knew we'd gotten this verdict against the same manufacturer. And I had testified at three CPSC committee meetings talking about the dangers of drain entrapment, and nobody would change anything. Didn't matter. The Peterson verdict didn't matter. Nothing mattered. But when Baker happened, everything mattered because the president was a guy named George W. Bush. And if everybody remembers, James Baker is the reason he was president one of the reasons. And Debbie Wasserman Schultz, our great friend, uh, was in Congress at the time, uh, probably the biggest pool safety advocate in the history of, of Congress or any legislature. She took the bill on the Democratic side. And that Virginia Graham Baker Pool Act, uh, once it was enacted, there has not been a single drain entrapment, a single one in the last 11 years. And um, it's, I mean, we, we knock on wood, have cured a terrible, I mean, a problem that killed more than 40 children in the United States and and catastrophically injured multiple, multiple others. And um, and so, and with Lauren's case, we've continued to make apartment uh, gates and apartment fencing and, and residential fencing better and better every year. The problem is we need to finish the job there because we don't have a national bill, um, but we've made it safer. And so both those cases you know, there were great wins. The client, the clients obviously benefited tremendously. Uh, but the safety that's come out of those cases is really the legacy I'm most proud of. Yeah, I mean, it's an incredible legacy that the, the fact that those cases existed and no longer exist, the, 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 the drain cases is, is a huge victory. And like you said, those gate cases are, are ones that you know, it should be next on the agenda because I, I know um, firsthand seeing some of these cases just had one recently I was involved with uh, working with the family and they were still living in the house where this had occurred because they didn't have the money to move out of the house. And, you know, every day they had to look at the pool where their their son had almost died, but, you know, thankfully survived. But again, you know, severe brain injury and catastrophic uh, damages and, you know, having to, to, you know, 
tell a family, hey, you know, here here's all we can do for you is get you some money to help is it's it's tough when really those things hopefully at some point will be eradicated completely when there is enough attention drawn to to it to where you know, there's action that's taken that prevents it from happening like what happened with the with the drain cases yeah it really is next on the agenda i was just i was just on a panel uh, with the baker family with some other families uh debbie wasserman schultz and uh at the national drowning prevention alliance and i told the story i have a a terrible gate case right now that's going to trial in June, hopefully in Broward. And it, it's painful for me to see the pool records and I see the drain covers are VGB certified. So that's my client. It's a bill I worked on with a tremendous coalition and it prevents that from happening. And right next to it is a gate violation. And if we had the same bill, we had the same type of enforcement on that, we would never have this tragedy. And we've known that since Lauren's case and well before that. And, uh, you know, we've gone to the legislature on that several times and we've improved it. We now have the Department of Health checking, but they only check twice a year. So if there's a broken gate in between, I mean, you know, so it really, it's, it's tough when you, when you handle these cases and you know this shouldn't happen and you know it, you, all I've got to do is turn on my computer or go to my office and look at a file. We know this should not happen. The defendants know now, the insurance companies know now, but that last piece of the advocacy to finish the drill uh, is what's missing. It's something I'm trying to get, you know, more lawyers. It's easy to say the FJA should do it. The FJA is very busy defending everything, but I, I want more law firms to understand that that's their role. When they see this tragedy, what can you do, you know, to now, you know, make that sure that never happens to your client again? And you can't do it in every case. But there's avenues we all can do, and and, um, and and I think I think the FJA has members who've done an incredible job with that. And uh, but we got to keep it up. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting that you know the the public doesn't really always appreciate what trial lawyers accomplish. That the fact that you know you eradicated um, something that was you know killing children and. Or, or severely, severely injuring children um, in these pool cases is, is an incredible thing that you've accomplished and has changed society. So, you know, it, it really is um, something that, that, you know, without which there, there would continue to be these, these instances where you have companies that, that put profits ahead of the safety of people. So, you know, along those lines, I, I wanted to ask you, you know, the, the negligent security stuff, because, I mean, I, I have seen these cases and they are typically, um, you know, equally as horrific. Um, and you've developed this niche. How did how did that come about in, in working on those types of cases as well? Well, you know, coming from the criminal world where I, I was a public defender, so you're trying all those type of cases. I went and worked with Don Russo when I left the public defender's office. He was a phenomenal lawyer, taught me so much about preparation and, and, and just really putting a case together. And so for some reason, I started getting negligent security cases. And, and, and when I came over to my dad's firm, worked with Bob Parks and my dad, same thing. But then, then we had, you know, so I was picking up a couple of these cases. I'm doing, I loved them because of the criminal aspect. So you get to combine a little bit of being a criminal lawyer that everybody loves and enjoys. Um, 
But then we had the Sammy Barak case, and Sammy Barak was a gentleman who was shot and rendered a quadriplegic outside of a, of a strip bar in a parking lot of a, of a small shopping center. And so that was a quadriplegic case we tried. He was actually in Tunisia when we tried it. And he had a tracheal tube that he had left Jackson Memorial Hospital with. And when we tried the case, that same tracheal tube had been there for three and a half years. Uh, was been was held together by fishing line. So again, if we did not win that case, Sammy doesn't live another six months. But we got a hundred million dollar verdict in that, and from then everything flowed. You know, we started getting security cases not only in Florida but across the country, and and so we become really such you know experts in it that every scenario we've dealt with, and it's 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 very interesting because you, you start to understand security and criminology, you know, not only more than the defendants, but more than most of the experts and how it really plays out uh, in real real life, you know. And so we've um, we've done them all over. And, and what we've been doing the last 10 years is I speak every year, Todd Michaels as well, at the uh, American Society of Industrial Security, which is the, the biggest security group in the world. It's one of the biggest conferences held. And it's great because you're out there talking to Hilton. You're out there talking to Walmart. You're out there talking to all these giant corporations about how they can avoid the incident happening in the first place. Like, forget about avoiding the lawsuit, but preventing the tragedy from happening because businesses don't want that. I mean, you have a murder at your hotel. That's in the press. Nobody's staying there. You know, you have a, you know, you have a big shooting at a mall. You know, that, that's going to you know, be a problem for that mall forever. So how do they get ahead of that? What do they do? And What's been interesting is kind of the the synergy, if you will, of when we handled the Barack case um, with, you know, the security industry exploding after 9-11 and then just continually advancing itself to the point now where if companies and businesses don't really have, you know, real security, not just I've got an old guy sits down in a, a, a chair and watches the parking lot, but real-time stuff with surveillance that can, you know, be motion activated, that can we can all watch our surveillance cameras, you know, on our phone. You know, we can we can be sitting there, a, a guard can be walking around a mall, and he can be looking at the parking lot on the other side of the mall because he can have security cameras on his phone. I mean, the, the technology with drones and everything like that, it's been an incredible niche to be a part of because it's changing all the time. And... Uh, you know, you used to have defense lawyers go, what? I mean, you're talking about drone. I mean, what's the scientific fiction stuff, Haggard, that you're doing? Well, let me get, guess what? Their security expert is the guy who's saying you should have drones flying around because it's cheaper, man hours, you can surveil so much more. So it's been a, it's been a great area to get into. The thing we're trying to do is get hotel chains to do what they're, you know, to implement these standards to apartment complexes to really understand, I mean, when you have somebody's family under your roof, that's a real responsibility. It's not just about selling and flipping the, the property. A family lives here. You need to make it safe for them. So we're trying to get those changes made in society, it, but it's, it's a little more slow going because there's a lot more players. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the end result of those cases I, I've seen are just, you know, 
when when the right things are not done, it it just has tragic consequences. And I'm I'm curious about that, and it's a question I've asked other trial lawyers that I've interviewed: is how do you empathize with your clients to tell their story to the jury? Because you've got to get that connection, but yet not become distraught with the harshness of the tragedies that you deal with. I mean, the the drowning cases, the negligent security cases. How do you how do you maintain that and and still be able to to convey to the jury, you know, these these terrible things? Yeah, I mean that it's kind of a a, a burden, you know, and and just when you handle these type of tragedies and you have children, and when you're handling cases involving children, it's it is, I would say, impossible to disconnect. I mean, I'll, I'll never forget. I mean, I. I tried hitting Lauren's case when she was the exact same age as my daughter. And, um, you know, when we got that verdict, you know, we press was outside the courthouse, all that, you know, I, I went straight to see Lauren, you know, you know, and my, it's funny because my dad, you know, he's trying to find me, you know, we tried the case together. And I went and I, and I sat by her bedside. And I, I probably cried for an hour. I mean, just thinking of my daughter and you, you can't separate it. I mean, when you get up there and you talk about a little girl who's never going to walk down the aisle, she's never going to have her first kiss, you know, fall in love. Um, it's, um, you know, you can't help but think and all those emotions go through you. And you know, she, she just turned 21. And, uh, and we, we were up in Atlanta, of course, with me, it's usually around football stuff. And, uh, and so I, I just had to see her and, you know, just to see her, she's, you know, in a wheelchair, she's, you know, still has all the, the disabilities she had, but she's just a beautiful young woman. And, and, um, you know, so you, you can't separate it and it's, and it's very, very tough. Um, uh, but I think that's what makes plant travelers different is you do, you live it. It's part of your life. You can never turn it off ever. And, um, you know, and I think that's what makes us do our jobs better. And it's truly a calling. So is there anything that you could share with other trial lawyers who might want to model their career after you or develop these kinds of specialty niches in their practice? Yeah, I mean, I, I often joke, you know, sometimes a niche might be a little bit of a, a curse, too, because, you know, you're always wondering with the legislature what could happen. You know, we um, one of our biggest legislative victories ever with the FGA um, was when we kept the intentional tort piecer off the verdict form in 2006. Um, you know, I always tell everybody, you know, we've always been involved with the FGA, but just you can look at my practice I mean that. That has profoundly affected my practice probably more than anybody, that one bill, because otherwise defendants would be able to blame the bad guy in every case, and some percentage probably would go to that. Um, so, but, you know, I think when you think about niches, I think people think about them too many times from marketing only. I mean, what I think can be fun about niches is how you then can get involved in the issue. So, for instance, you know, with drowning, being on the National Drowning Prevention Alliance, I've met so many incredible people that aren't lawyers, 
that are that are you know have aquatic companies build pools uh, that are involved in USA swimming. I mean, I, I gave a presentation at the NDPA one time. The next presenter was a guy named Michael Phelps. You know, I mean, and I'm, you know, so I mean that you know, meet, get to meet one of my heroes. You know, and we're talking about safe swimming together. You know, how, how does that work? And same thing with negligent security. I mean, you, you, you're, you, it's such an integral part of our life, security. And you, you know, whether you're at the airport, whether you're anywhere. So it's fun to get involved in those type of things. I think, so if you are lucky enough or you do kind of develop something, you know, really get involved in it. And you, because we always think the defendants are the bad guys, but we can, we can change the way they think, you know, we really can. And we, you know, it's kind of like somebody asked me the other day, so you effectively put yourself out of business with the drain entrapment cases. I'm like, you're darn right I did. I said, I don't ever, ever want to look across the conference room table at a family who's lost a child because of a suction entrapment. And I hope to never do it again in a drowning case. I would, you know, I'll find something else to do. And that's really the goal of the tort system. I'm, I'm, you know, Sean Dominic would do anything to never to absolutely uh, eliminate medical errors. I mean, we all would. Um, and we'll do something else. So I think I think when you do get, get in a niche, you know, really get into it, learn about it, become a real expert in it, not just marketing to get those cases. Because it's more authentic too. And, and that's when you, you do, then people really think of you as, as that lawyer. You know, they're not just doing it because they saw you did a mailer. They know that this, this, this guy, this girl, they really know trucking or they re- whatever the issue is. They know it because you know, you're, you're, you're taking time to do media hits. You're taking time to really write articles that really matter about a particular subject. So that would be my advice. And, it's, and it broadens your horizons too, which is fun. And you meet other people. It's not just lawyer conferences. So what are you most focused on currently and what are your firm – uh, plans for the near future. Yeah, well, we, we've gotten a little younger. We've hired two, one associate right before the pandemic, and we just hired another young lawyer. And so you're doing a lot of training right now, which is which is interesting, you know, because you you think back to you know what Don taught me and Bob and my dad, and I'm trying to impart that. You know, I'm really just excited uh, for the future, for their future. You know, I think the growth of a firm always is. If the, the managing partners, the senior partners, if, if you will, that they, they want everything for those younger lawyers. They want those younger lawyers to have the careers that they've had, you know, and, and they want them to blossom, you know, want them to have the opportunities, whether it's with the FJA or AAJ or, you know, whatever organization, you know, to become leaders in those organizations and, and, and give back to the community. So we, um, I'm just tremendously excited about that. I mean, I've got, you know, three other partners and two associates. We're six main lawyers now. My dad's pre- you know, pretty much retired. Sometimes he says he's retired. Sometimes he says he's not. We're not really sure. Uh, but uh, but it's great to hear him come down and, you know, just talk about a certain case and tell somebody, just go try it. Just go, you know, what you, you know, and with the old trial lawyer attitude, which I love. Um, and so we're, you know, we, we do everything. One thing I always tell people, because they think about us as just negligent security, we're drowning. I'm like, well, we do everything. I mean, I've got, I've got some fun trucking cases right now. We we do everything. Also, if something is outside our wheelhouse, you know, one of my favorite things is to work with other lawyers, and, and because 
you know, you feel like you're you're outside your firm, you're working with another lawyer, it's just great. And uh, so I'm really excited for the future. We've got a little bit younger and uh, and excited to see what they can do. Well, that's where I'm assuming that, and I shouldn't say assuming, I know that you work with firms all across the country, co-counseling cases with some of these these areas that you have that niche practice in addition to, to do in all the different aspects of tort law, but you, you do work with firms all across the country when they have cases that you can impart your expertise and help them achieve the, the results for the client. So those negligent security cases, those pool cases, uh, those sorts of things, right? Yeah. I mean, we've, we've handled I mean, pool cases and just trying to case in general, probably now in probably 15 states. I mean, I even talked about the Baker case, but we've had them in California. We've had them in Texas, Georgia, really all over. And, and then same with negligent security. You know, negligent security is so interesting because unfortunately, you know, crime is not going away. And, you know, we're very involved, obviously, handling the Parkland cases and other cases where, you know, as much as I want properties to act better, there is the epidemic of gun violence in this country. And while that may be a controversial topic, another way to hopefully put myself out of business is to have sensible gun reform because then we don't have this this violence. So we're very involved in that movement with our clients. Um, several of our clients have incredible foundations, are doing incredible work, and we support them. Are involved. We're involved with the Brady Center uh, and, and those types of things. Um, but I really like encouraging other lawyers in other states to take a shot at these negligent security cases because when I speak nationally, you'll hear people say, "You you sued a gas station." I mean, really, what's a gas station going to do? And it's kind of because those states just haven't had those cases yet for whatever reason. Florida's a little, we've been ahead of the curve in that. And um, I handled two cases in, in Indiana where whether the intentional tort fees were going on the verdict form had never been decided. And the judge was like, we've never dealt with this. And they, they had joined several at the time, so it really didn't matter. But then joint and several got taken away by their the Indiana legislature three weeks before I tried this case. So we had to figure it out. And so you could tell we just were a little bit ahead. But it's it's great seeing those lawyers kind of because they're not they haven't seen it as many times as we have. Well, why why should a gas station have different security measures? Well, because they're the leading industry that gets robbed. It's not banks. It's not, it's not, you know, back in the day with banks, it's gas stations. So why not? Why shouldn't they have that security? And one of the reasons they don't is because they're owned by the same people who basically say, we all don't have a security guard, we're fine. That's the industry standard. And so we're working with a bunch of lawyers in California, really all over the country in different cases now, trying to get them to get maybe even more aggressive on security cases because it's a matter of life and death. And, you know, one of the issues that we're really trying to get people focused on is with everything going on with social justice in our country, one of the biggest inequalities is something I deal with every day in one of my cases, and that's housing inequality. And the housing in this country is so discriminatory uh, on the basis of race. And if you look at the violence in apartment complexes in low-income housing, it's astronomical. And we all know that when we think about it. We think about where do a lot of these shootings happen? Well, and they all happen in places that don't have security and places that are owned by corporations who get tax credits from the government 
to run those those apartments. So that's something that we're talking about a lot now that, you know, fair housing equals safe housing. And uh, and that's a, a theme that not only we're using our cases, but we're going to local government saying, I mean, this is on you. How are you letting this slumlord get all these tax credits, you know, at the basis of your citizens and not, and not providing safety for them? And then your hospital districts are overrun. So it's a, it's another real factor of social injustice that that affects our cases. So, you know, we feel like we've got to take it to the next level. On that. That's a great point. What is the one tip you would give other trial lawyers that's part of your secret to success in the practice of personal injury law? Well, I, I hate to say it, it's pretty simple, but I mean, it's all about hard work. I mean, you can't do this job nine to five, or if there's somebody who can, I'd do anything. They would give me the secret sauce because, you know, it, it is all about um, just working harder on your opponent. I mean, you've got to, you know, if, you know, it's, it's, all, it's always funny. I see lawyers arguing all the time, you know, and you, you, you know, the professionalism, this and that. My attitude always was, I'm not going to argue. I'm just going to work 10 times harder than you. I mean, I'm not going to argue with you. You feel this way. I feel this way. It's fine. And, you know, but now I'm going to, now I'm, now I'm doubling down even you know, more. And I, I just think that there's no shortcut to being a plaintiff's trial lawyer. There's no, it's all about hard work. Um, and, uh, you know, and it's also about understanding the long picture too, you know, talking about those arguments with defense counsel or maybe, uh, an argument with co-counsel. I, I just always tell people, you know, you, you, it's a long ride. It's a long journey and just do the right thing you know, be ethical, you know, that it will come back to you tenfold. If you, you have a case where somebody calls you and you find out they're represented by somebody, they want to fire them, you know. Tell them, look, call Joe, call Joe back. Joe, I call Joe, Joe, your client's calling me, you know, please call him back. Oh my God, I, I was really busy. Okay. And let me tell you, I'll, Joe will get my back later on, guarantee it. And uh, so I that'd be two things, work harder than anybody and uh, understand it's a long journey. You, do, you know, not every little battle is World War II, you know, just, you know, kind of understand you, it's a marathon. Mike, I just wanted to ask you, what are the most difficult issues you guys are facing when you're trying to resolve catastrophic claims these days? Is it dealing with Medicare, liens, government benefit preservation, trying to protect the client's recovery? What, what's really the most challenging issues you guys face now? Yeah, I think, you know, after the big fight, and you finally get it resolved, you realize, you know, it's not all done. Um, liens, obviously, have gotten more and more complicated. So you got to make sure that you handle those to the best ability that you can for the client so that they walk away with the most money and all your hard work and all their courage to bring the case is rewarded with the most amount you can get them to take care of them. And the same goes for government benefits. I mean, uh, you and I had a case several years ago where uh, the real issue became, you know, because we had a complicated case with some wrongful death intersecting with uh, a catastrophic brain injury, how do we give clients money yet preserve their medical benefits? And, and if it wasn't for your expertise in figuring out, well, wait, there's a way to do that to buy private health insurance, you know, that would have been a really, you know, put so many burdens on the uh, clients after that, that it almost wouldn't have been worth it. And it was a great recovery, but just because you do a great job in the lawsuit doesn't mean that's going to be the best result for your clients unless you get experts involved who know a lot more in the area than we do. 
Yeah, we, we call that the case after the case. All those issues that you've just talked about are the ones that are challenging for trial lawyers to deal with because you know, your, your expertise is, is representing your client getting the best possible recovery for them. It's not the minutia of Medicare or ERISA or Medicaid. All those issues are just getting more and more complex daily. So that's 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 job security for us, and you know helps ultimately make your job easier if you've got a resource like us to make sure those issues get addressed compliantly. Yeah, and I tell lawyers who who still handle it on their own or or don't put the emphasis on it. You know, for every extra five hundred thousand dollars you negotiate, you work so hard, you take a great expert deposition you prepared for all weekend, you can blow all those net gains for your client if you don't talk to an expert about um, what they're going to do with the lien and what, how far can we get the lien down or how can we preserve these government trusts. And all your hard work goes basically for nothing if you don't preserve it for the client. So I tell any lawyer I talk to, just get the experts involved, you guys, um, as early on as possible uh, in all facets of the case after the case like you talked about. So I know you do a lot of work with other law firms across the country. Uh, if someone's watching this podcast, they want to get in touch with you to work with you on a uh, referral basis or want to co-counsel a case with you, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Sure. Well, my uh, email is mah um, at haggardlawfirm.com. And uh, you can always reach us at the office, 305-446-5700. And, uh, you know, I'm on my cell phone all the time, 786-506-9946. So if anybody wants to talk about drowning cases or negligent security cases or any type of, you know, catastrophic injury case, we're always available not only to work with people, but to help them as well, because, you know, we, we just want these cases handled right. These areas of the law are really, really difficult and a lot of detail needs to go into it. Well, you know, having worked with you for 20 years, it's um, it's great to have you on the podcast. And for those who are listening, uh, Mike would be an incredible uh, guy to try a case with or pick his brain if you need help. So I, I would encourage you to reach out. And thanks again, Mike, for joining me today. And we'll see everyone on the next podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Jason. Good to see you. Thanks for tuning in to Trial Lawyer Review. You can find more at triallawyerreview.com and look for more episodes and more content coming in the future.